You're listening to Neurodiversity at Work. Welcome to today's episode, sponsored and powered by Dynamis Group. Recently honoured to be part of 300 years of leadership and innovation. We at Dynamis believe that business is a catalyst for positive impact in the world. By building a bridge between the top leaders of today and the brightest leaders of tomorrow. We inspire them to do things they have never done before. And I'm proud to have Dynamis powering today's podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Jackie Edry, author of Moving Forward Reflections on Autism, Neurodiversity, Brain Surgery and Faith. And we have a really good conversation around what it is to be a parent parenting neurodiverse kids. The challenges, the opportunities, the fun, the tears, and some really great thoughts uh, and reflections on the book itself. Uh, Enjoy the show. Look forward to your feedback. Thank you very much. Welcome to the podcast, Jackie. Really pleased to have you on today. Very excited to hear about um, the work that you've been doing, your book, uh, and to hear your thoughts around neurodiversity. Would you like to introduce yourself to our audience, let them know who you are, what you do, what you're about, and why you're joining me today? Well, thank you very much for uh, having me. I am so pleased and honored. Uh, my name is Jackie Edry. I've just authored my first book, Moving Forward, Reflections on Autism, neurodiversity, brain surgery, and faith. Um, and I've also on my website uh, launched a blog, jackiesbooks.com without the E in the middle, J-A-C-K-I-S-B-O-O-K-S. Um, and basically, um, I wrote a book and I launched a blog in order to help uh, others understand um, the connection of uh, uh, understand about neurodiversity and my connection to neurodiversity and to also facilitate understanding uh, people with uh, different brains um, and to help uh, them to help the people that they love and work with. Um, and <clears throat> my education formally was at the Hampshire College and then after that uh, my thesis was uh, educating autistic children. And then when I went on to become a parent, I had a son on the spectrum and another uh a bunch of autistic, uh, neurodiverse children. And a number of years ago, I had brain surgery. And after my brain surgery, I became neurodiverse myself with my sensory scrambling. And when I realized all of that, um, I gained significant uh, insights as to how a neurodivergent brain works and thought I could put it all down in a book and, and help people uh, gain understanding, which is why I actually uh, wrote the book and uh, took my background as a uh, 
a writer and an educator and a marketer and put it all together to try and help spread the word. Incredible. And that sounds like some journey there. You, you've, you've captured that lovely. Um, but actually, it sounds like a good proportion of time there that you've invested in to neurodiversity as a concept and then much earlier on um, autism. Just So just tell us a bit more about that journey, what neurodiversity means to you um, and, and why you've taken, you know, why you've taken it upon yourself to, to commit your time and energy um, to writing the book and, and to supporting the cause. Okay, well, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, um, certainly through, and really I think this is something that needs to be addressed uh, very seriously, because I see that there's a big movement um, in the workplace to try and um, address neurodiversity. But basically, we all have different brains, and we all have different abilities, and we all have different strengths and weaknesses and ways of thinking. Um, and, you know, when... Uh, Schools were developed years ago to prepare people for the workplace, which was, you know, in, in a lot of places, uh, in a lot of ways, industrialism. Um, it made sort of sense to have education and, and schooling to reflect around everybody kind of being the same uh, and learning the same skills and, and you know, in order to uh, ensure the, their success in the future. But, but our world is very different these days. And the types of schooling where um, everyone needs to learn the same thing and progress at the same pace um, doesn't really, in my opinion, make any sense. Um, there are so many different, every, you know, the world needs different kinds of people and different skills. And no one skill is better than the other. Everyone was born with their own particular um, task in the world and, and gifts and, 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 you know, like, if education was built um, and designed to sort of bring out everyone's specific talents and skills, that would go on to the workplace and the workplace of the future actually is looking for creativity and skills and, and that everybody brings something different. So sort of society needs to really undergo uh, a huge change that starts with, you know, kindergarten um, where skills are being taught and, and recognition of people's abilities, and different abilities, and celebrating those. And if assistive technologies and all kinds of things like that need to be used, then, then they should be implemented. Um, whatever it takes to sort of bring out the best in every, every human. Um, and, and, and the human tapestry needs to be very um, um, colorful, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and, and diverse. Um, so, so that's sort of what it needs to me. And, and, and the reason I'm connected to all this is because, you know, I'm a parent, um, and I, my children are neurodivergent, but even if they weren't, uh, my friends have kids, you know, my family has kids, I have kids, I, I've worked in education. I, I see how things need to change in, in order to, um, create a healthier and happier society, um, which is inclusive and, you know, to have, my own my own child sort of living on the, on the fringes of society because he has some uh, communication uh, issues um, or diagnoses or things like that you think well that doesn't um, make sense you know that, that these children aren't connected from the time that they're very young and then um, that go on throughout their lives if, if everyone was sort of recreating education and recreating um, 
um, the workplace, then everyone would be able to find each other, the, their place, and people would appreciate each other's differences. Um, which is why I wrote my book to help generate awareness and also that um, generate the awareness that sometimes people can't always um, uh, express what their internal abilities or desires are, but that doesn't mean they're not in there and that society really can make an effort to kind of discover them and give uh, people the tools to express it and, and, and give their gifts to society. So sort of a, I'm looking to, to see an, an entire overhaul of everything and, and, and uh, you know, I'm trying to do my part and sort of jumping on that uh, wagon and, and then making that happen and hooking up with people around the world to, to ensure that that happens. Brilliant. And that's really interesting because, you know, if I think of it from where I am in, uh, you know, north of England um, and the challenges that, you know, my children face and I see other children face, Sometimes it's hard to know the impact globally, you know, uh, but I speak mm -hmm. to people all over the world and have them on the podcast. And actually what you're saying there is uh, is interesting, which is, you know, it's it we, we've we've changed as a world globally. We've changed as a world. So it's not even just about the education system, um, you know, which in some countries it's more broken than others. Right. In terms of sure. supporting kids who don't fit into the defined box, the generalist box. Um, but actually, uh, it's not just the education system, it's it's the work, the way that we now work, and therefore the way that exactly. we teach our kids in preparation for that work uh -huh. um, is not necessarily evolved in the way that it needs to. And, you know, we maybe don't have as many people working outside, right, or in, in factories uh -huh. or mills or whatever it may be, and technology is starting to become a powerful part of our of our working world. Um, uh, yet the, the education system doesn't seem to have shifted um, which is really frustrating when you look at our children, right, and think of the uh, the skills and the capability that they have, but the lack of sure. um, support and structure within that education system, whether you're in the UK or anywhere else in the world. It's, it's not being fixed as a problem. No. You know, and, and I think actually one of the, the like, easiest ways to, to, to provide some of these fixes are, let's say if you start educating children using... Um, at least even for part of the day, um, problem or project-based uh, learning. It's called PBL or in social-emotional learning and both of those together, actually, so that um, if kids learn at a very early age to work in groups and each, you know, not on their own, but uh, they will have somebody advise them, ask the right questions, help to, to them to develop the skills to work in a group, um, but give them problems to solve and give them a little bit of guidance you find that each person, each child, will find a way to develop their, uh, you know, they'll find their own specific skills. So you have the, the, the more artistic kind of kid will be doing, you know, um, graphics, and, and the one who likes to do research will be doing research, and the one who likes to talk is going to stand up there and present. But everyone sort of works together, and you can teach them those skills that they need in the workplace and to use all the tools that, uh, that are available these days so that a lot of the... Uh, uh, things that are considered to be disabilities um, might not actually be important anymore. And then you wind up with kids to, who have a much um, um, higher self-image because they find their niche to be successful. Um, and that will reflect in the workplace as, as they get older. So it's sort of, you know, it's throughout the lifespan. And it will also connect the kids who are sort of on the fringes because 
one of the things that you have, um, uh, I think, is, is children, especially if those, if, if they have, co- any, you know, any kind of um, challenges, educational challenges, and they're they're not, you know, with this fast-paced test, uh, test, learn for the test, and you know, high-speed testing, and all this grades, and all this baloney, um, that some people will feel, uh, some children will feel that they are very. Um, um, you know, they're not worthy. And if you give them opportunities to show what they can do, the other children will also uh, understand that they have something to give. By sitting together in a classroom, one next to the other, and just looking at grades, I mean, so many kids get so lost in that. If, they don't, if they're not a kid or if they have dyslexia or if they have ADHD or if they have anything going on there, and their performance on tests does not reflect their, their cognitive, cognitive abilities or their, um, you know, their, their knowledge, then they're going to feel that they're not worth anything. And the other kids are going to then look at them like, oh, that kid, you know, he's got no ability and they're not going to want to play with them. So if, if the whole thing was sort of restructured, then you can solve those problems ahead of time. I mean, so many um, really successful people in the workplace, businessmen, CEOs, have things like attention issues or dyslexia or whatever. And, and as they get older, they had to overcome all their scars from the school system. And then the, because they have those challenges, they just suddenly those challenges are actually seen as abilities because they think more creatively, let's say. Or they, you know, they're not, they're not um, just spewing back answers that somebody taught them whether they're using their own thinking, which is different. They think uh, associatively instead of linearly. So all those things can be great gifts if you want to create new things. But they're actually um, uh, inhibited in the traditional schooling. So that sort of shift that needs to be done will facilitate inclusion, and then inclusion all through people with disabilities in society. Because the whole thing, you know, inclusion has to be not living beside somebody and saying, oh, we take, we have 10% of our uh, population in our workplace is disabled. Well, yeah, let's, you know, take off our hats, kind of, that kind of thing. Rather, you have a part of the, um, the work environment or the school environment. Our society is made up of different people. It's a mindset shift. And everyone is important. And it doesn't matter what they're rapping is, you know, if they're disabled or not disabled, everyone has, to, has their place and have them be fully not included to be, become a part of society as, as living or being included on the side of society. If you get what I'm saying, I hope I'm making sense. Yeah, absolutely. So um, quite a bit of what you talked about there around the education system and the structure of it. Uh, my nephew goes to a school um, where they, the style of teaching uh, and education is democratic. Therefore, mm-hmm. the children have an input into uh, what they learn, but also yeah. how they learn it. Um, the schools actually um, was in the news quite a bit in Wales because it, it's owned and run by somebody called Charlotte Church, who was a, she used to be a uh, singer. And she was a professional opera singer, very young, famous at the age of something like 12 or 13. Um, and she, in her older years, has, has set up this uh, democratic school. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's a perfect example of where the children, you know, if they're learning maths, they may learn maths 
through growing vegetables and selling them into the local community or they may sure, learn sure. maths uh-huh. through sitting down and solving puzzle uh, you know sums on a piece of paper whatever it is but they but they learn it in a way that makes sense to them and that will then right. translate into what they will probably go on to do in the future right whether they want exactly. to be a neuroscientist or whether they want to run uh, hairdressing businesses or yeah. or they just you know they want to they want to write a novel or whatever it may be um, uh-huh. it, it's starting to set them up for success, but also to your point, which I think is the most important thing, um, it makes them feel valued and included, mm-hmm. um, and it provides equity within the education system. So, for you know, sure. not everybody is going to learn in the same way. Some people need a step up. Some people um, need uh, different uh, methods for learning the same type of stuff sure. Um, sure. outside, inside, wherever. So, yeah, no, I like that. Um, and uh, I, I wish we started some more examples of this. You know, I, I actually learned in that sort of environment as well, and I went to an alternative college as well. Um, and I could have fit in the regular system, but my brain, you know, I, I didn't like it. I could have succeeded, but it wasn't something that I felt uh, um, I wasn't excited about it. Let's put it that way. I didn't enjoy it. But, you know, even if schools don't want to completely uh, do an overhaul and just say, okay, we'll be a democratic school or a project-based school or whatever, but they can do it in, in a very easy, simple f- format as part of the, the, the day, part of the curriculum. For example, they can separate kids into groups to identify something going on, you know, like what can we do a special project either in the community or in our school, um, even if it's a community garden or painting murals around the school or it doesn't matter what, but made up, you know, the kids can also come up with great ideas, made up of different um, of uh, you know different groups of kids and again the same sort of guidance and a part of the day and they'll see those things happen and people will become connected the kids if they're given opportunities to do stuff together they connect Temple Grandin who's a very famous uh, woman uh, autistic woman and then she's written books and she, she's got a number of different careers um, but she said you know it was easier for her probably because when when she was young um, I want to remember this completely accurately, and I hope I am. Um, but it was easier because kids used to, you know, be outside and doing things together all the time. So she was, do, you know, very good at doing all kinds of hands-on stuff. And, and the other kids got to, uh, be, you know, got to see that stuff. And then so they appreciated her talents. And so she was included because of those things, because they were doing stuff together. Whereas the educational system right now doesn't have people doing anything. They have them sitting on their butts. And actually, a lot of that sitting, because kids aren't naturally inclined to sit on their butts, most of them were told after a short period of time, you know, the parent gets that conversation from the teacher that says, or the guidance counselor says, oh, you need to take care of your child. And what does that, I don't know what it means overseas, but I know what that means here. Your child needs treatment means give your kid a Ritalin or whatever to sit their butt on the chair because, you know, they're bored or they're... It goes against uh, being a child, uh, I think, to sit on your chair for eight hours a day and fill in workbooks and things like that. And I bet if people were they were moving around and doing stuff, at least for part of the day, then then that would take care of some of the things that were considered uh, that would put children into the neurodivergent category. Um, I think. Absolutely, no, I agree. Um, I think uh, that's the thing around giving people options around uh, what they do. Right, some people need to absolutely be on their feet, and that is not a bad thing. So that kind of that's no. a nice segue from uh, kind of, I guess, uh, the, the family side of it, which is a big part of the audience that listens into this. You know, their families, their kids, um, and when we think of the work context, the employees. 
Um, it's it's the kids that we worry about, right? And we've gone through COVID. It can take up a big part of our life when we think about our mental health and well-being. So how how did all of that experience and that journey lead you up to the point of very recently writing the book and then what give us a kind of a a kind of a high level synopsis into um, what the book is about well I think a lot of it um, the reason I wrote the book really has the fact that I've put my children through the educational system (laughs) and um, and seen how many limitations are um, placed on children that that are unnecessary and also a lot of times parents lack understanding of uh, why a child is behaving in a certain way. Um, and, you know, or like I said, the school district, the, the, the ministries, they, they limit child's uh, abilities to um, use assistive devices, let's say, if they have, you know, or, or testing, like they, you know, they, they don't want to give them too many accommodations and things like that. And, or they don't understand why the kid really doesn't perform. They see the potential they see the children has cognitive uh, uh, abilities, but at the same time, their performance is lousy or the kid gets up every morning and doesn't want to go to school. And I mean, I've been through all that and I've been fighting the system for so many years. My oldest child um, is, is in her mid-20s uh, with attention issues. And then I have a child with autism and then I have others with ADHD, dyslexia and Irulan syndrome. Um, and, you know, it's just a never-ending uh war and also because I think most of the teachers um, and lots of parents have no clue. Um, they don't look behind, beyond what, you know, the performance. They don't say, what happened? What's, what's messing up here? What, why isn't this child able to, to get it? You know, why, why isn't this child able to read even though I know they have the, the techniques? Why why they, you know, they're, maybe they're lazy, maybe they're not making the effort, and they don't understand what the effort is that it takes for a child, let's say, who has auditory problems, auditory processing problems. You know, these are all neurological things, too, and, and they, get miss, they get missed, okay? Um, let's say I have a, a child, uh, several, actually, with severe auditory processing problems, okay? Now, they go to do a hearing test, and they come up with normal and decibel uh, range. They hear the beeps on the test. But they miss, let's say, a word in every sentence or a couple in every paragraph. And after 10 minutes in a class, especially if there's noise, um, they have no clue what's going on. Um, and it takes them such incredible amount of energy to, to, to try and, and figure that out, you know, and, and stay with the class. So the attention starts wandering. And then, oh, you know, go, let's get the kid medicated um, because the kid's not paying attention. Um, and it's not because the kid's not trying to pay attention is because the kid's missing something in the, you know, in the, in the hearing sense. And then, and if you, uh, if you look at that and then you have it compounded by, uh, let's say Erland syndrome or dyslexia. So they have the same thing going on in the visual sense. And that's also not measurable. Um, you know, the eye doctor doesn't see it. So you need special testing for all these things. And so you get, you get a kid, uh, after the first day of school just has had enough because they've been trying so hard. Um, and they can't um, function, and the teacher doesn't get it. And the, so I saw this for so many years, and I was so frustrated for so many years, and I was fighting the districts to try and get them to understand what was going on. And I, I figured that the, the main problem was sensory and, 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 and input and processing. 
and neurological. And so I was always looking for solutions for my children about these things. Um, and, and along the way, we were doing well and, and things, you know, as far as uh, getting uh, support outside of the school system and, and working hard to keep their self-image uh, uh, intact. Um, and then I had brain surgery. And after my brain surgery, I woke up with completely messed up uh, sensory processing uh, and perception. You know, I'd see stuff and, and my visual field would go ballistic. You know, I'd look at somebody and their, their face would suddenly become double or melt. Or the streets would go up, uh, you know, sidewalks or I'd see the road, you know, I'd, I'd see things just, you know, becoming double, um, halos around lights. I'd miss part of what people were saying. Um, I couldn't organize my motor planning. Um, so I had all this stuff happen to me. And, and in essence, it was things that I'd been observing in my children and the children I'd been working with over the years. I'd worked in education. I'd worked with uh, kids on the spectrum. And I'd also worked in, um, a, you know, in different environments uh, uh, and writing and marketing. Those are sort of my, my different hats. Um, but, you know, I, I saw all this stuff. And, and then I developed sort of a, an idea of how to assist anyone in those uh, in that position or the, those with those challenges and then it all happened to me and I sort of got the the validation of oh okay you're right you know these you have to look at these things first you have to look past the performance you have to try and figure out what's what's off you know what's off sensory process what's off organizational what's what's off and 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 have parents and professionals be uh, aware in order to assist people in a different um, in light. And that's why I wrote the book, because that journey was, was you know, very difficult. And in addition, I think uh, the other parts of the, the book talk about how faith helped along the way and also um, dealing with great strife. I mean, like my, the, the part of the book, the beginning is, explains about sensory and neurological processing and all that other stuff. And then a little bit about faith and, and, and then what it was like to go through brain surgery and the recovery um, and overcoming those challenges and, and what helped to overcome challenges, you know, and, 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 and organizing, uh, reorganizing my life and my brain and my body um, and how faith and hope and hard work, you know, you can go very, very far and get, have meaning in life. And, and, and I wanted to get those messages out to because I think a lot of people uh, are in those positions, you know, people have different kinds of challenges in their life all around, whether it be medical or whatever. Um, and to help people find the, their internal strength. That's, that's sort of how it all comes together. Wow. Yeah. And I think that's the problem. People can feel very isolated, especially with something that's so, misunderstood um mm -hmm. and where there's been so much confusion and I, earlier you talked about you know drugs and and children being given drugs from a very young age and then you know making decisions later on that that's either right or, or not right for them um uh, and therefore there's there's confusion from parents confusion from young people who've grown up um and maybe had a diagnosis that wasn't correct wasn't accurate Mm -hmm. um, focused around mental health and well-being rather than sure. um, that they were on the spectrum and oh, so it's uh, yeah it's really important that um, you know we, we have as many channels for people to be able to access sure. information and support and like so it's incredible to the time mm -hmm. 
Yes. Sensory process, I'd, I'd say, like uh, like Ireland syndrome. If someone's having a problem with their visual uh, perception, okay, like, and they don't know it because that's the way they've always been, okay. So let's say they're having tunnel vision, and I'm talking a real life example here, okay. Uh, and they don't know they have tunnel vision. So suddenly they're, they're like they can't play sports particularly well, or suddenly they're walking down a sidewalk and people. Um, people walk in and out of the visual field and they sort of disappear. And so the person could think, well, wait a minute, I'm hallucinating. I'm imagining things and become very fearful or not want to walk out the house. And it actually has nothing to do with mental health. It has everything to do with the fact that it was a visual perceptual problem. Um, and that's, that's a real life case. What I told you, which was changed actually the minute they get earless spectral filters, the, the visual field open and they're, oh my gosh, you know, what's this? That's other people don't see the world like that, like me, you know, that, that, and, and the fear went away. So, so many things, uh, you know, are misdiagnosed and, and getting to the root of the problem is very, very, very difficult sometimes. But, you know, I think as parents, a parent need, you need to trust your instincts and never give up, you know, think something's behind something, you know, some, something behind the behavior, something behind the lack of ability at a particular time try and keep searching until you find the, the, the root of it, you know, which is, which is sometimes takes many, many years. Um, but, but to, you know, keep persisting because a parent, I think most parents will, will feel their children and, and understand that, you know, and, and, and understand there's something going on. And I think also if, if you know, let's say a person has a sensory processing problem, um, you know, a, a, a drug like Ritalin, let's say per se, might sit them down on a chair, but it's not going to solve it. They're not hearing properly. And it's not going to make them hear properly if they have auditory processing problems. You can't treat sensory prob- processing problems with behavioral interventions. That that probably will just, the result of that will be, you know, post-trauma. And a lot of people on the spectrum are talking about the fact that they were, you know, ABA or other behavioral interventions were used to control behavior. And the behavior was in response to a sensory uh, meltdown kind of thing, or that, you know, they were forced to stop doing things to calm their bodies down, like, because uh, they were considered to be stimming. But, you know, like when I, I my vestibular system went uh, out of whack and I was, I couldn't stand up straight because I felt I had weights pushing me to the side. And my, my physical therapist says, you know, hold on to the chair and start rocking backwards and forwards. And I looked at her and I was like, are you kidding? She said, yeah, it helps. It helps, you know, balance the vestibular system. I said, but, you know, they treat autistic kids. They say never, they're, they're not allowed to rock because it's stimming and you have to stop it. And she said, but it bounces out the system. I said, well, I know that and you know that, but isn't it amazing that you as a physical therapist would know that, but all the people who are doing the behavioral treatments trying to make the kids not do that kind of stuff. So, I mean, like, it's, 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 it's just stuff that doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that and you convert, you know, stimming uh, becomes, you know, it's a tick. It's or it's, it, you know, it's always basically finding how it's a problem when no, it's not a problem when um, that person performs well, they enjoy life, they do things well and using up their energy in a way, in a positive mm-hmm. way, you know, like it, that it's, you know, reverberating through their body out, out of their fingers, wherever it's going. What, what I was thinking or what, what it seems to me and appears to me about stimming is um, in many cases it has something to do with um, uh, sensory overload. It's like it's kind of like a trip circuit breaker. So you ever see what happens when uh, when there's a power surge suddenly and then the circuit breaker trips and the, the electric it goes off or like there's a wave running through, you know, it's too much stimulation. 
So I yes. think in a way, like a trip circuit breaker could be um, sort of a stim where like if my son gets over overstimulated about something, so he'll suddenly jump or flap his hands or, you know, I, I'll have that feeling of, you know, I need something to calm my body. It's kind of like a wave that kind of runs through your body and you have to let it out. And if you prevent that from happening, then it will cause internal stress or the body will not reorganize. And if you find ways to uh, help um, rebalance out the system, then the need to stim goes away on its own. You don't need to force someone to stop stimming. The stimming has a purpose. And actually, you know, a lot of people um, uh, with ABA, like when when I worked in a behavioral modification school back in the it was in the 87, okay? It was brand new, 86. Um, and so they, they would say, like, the big problem with, with those sort of interventions are that when you when you uh, eliminate a particular behavior, like a STEM or whatever it may be, then, like, uh, a couple of months later, a new one will come in its place. And, and they, they would even say that's a problem with uh, of their own, you know, uh, with, with their system. And, and the reason that happens is because there's a reason there's a stim. It, it comes correct uh, uh, some sort of imbalance. So you can't force it away behaviorally. Like I said, it can cause trauma. What you need to do is sort of figure out what's unbalanced and help find a way to balance it out. That's, that's sort of how my take about it. Brilliant. And who should uh, read your book? Who, who have you written it for? Um, uh, who, who's it going to help? Um, everybody. <laughs> really, no, I, I, there are things, parents, particularly parents of, of recently diagnosed children and um, professionals, because I think professionals in a lot of ways will throw around diagnoses and not, not look beyond uh, what that means um, and what that means to parents um, and educators. Um, it really can help everybody because it's sort of on all the different sides. I'm, I've worn all the hats, <laughs> you know, and it's all the different sides of the coin, let's say, um, with hopes that, you know, it, it will bring insights um, even to people who have a lot of knowledge because I don't think there are that many people who have been a parent and a professional and then had their system mess uh, and become part of the neuro neurodivergent community. So that I sort of see it from all the different angles, you know? It, it, it's fascinating. And I can say as a parent uh, who struggles, you know, to not understand myself, let alone my children as well, and to ensure that I get them the right support, there's still far too little information um, that comes yeah. from people who really do understand it and, and understand how communi to communicate it. That's that's mm -hmm. that's the challenge, right? So I'm, I'm passionate oh, yeah. about the the employment system from my perspective because that's where my level of expertise is so i feel sure. like i can change the world of work so that when my mm -hmm. kids get there they might have a fighting chance but um i would yeah. also like to give them a fighting chance in the education system today right i don't want them it starts yeah I mean, just till they get to to the world of work i feel like i i've spent all my years um undoing what's done in in schools uh you know to so that they will come out of them as least damage as possible <laughs> so that they'll be able to trust their abilities in the workplace and you know i had two of my kids who are older now um have realized that the minute they get out of the school system which puts limitations on them and they get into the ones in the army and ones in the workplace all the things that were sort of considered to be disadvantages are now advantages and no one gives a hoot if they use any kind of accommodations you know you know like let's say attention uh uh adhd okay um 
which, you know, schools, you know, they had a really hard time. Let's put it that way. All of them. Um, and I always said to them, you know, I understand, but let's, let's not call it attention uh, disorder. Let's call it divided attention. Okay. Now a person who has divided attention, um, and has high cognitive skills per se, or abilities. Okay. They've been given a very, very powerful tool, but they need to know how to use it. So like the conversation I had with my, my daughter, I remember she must've been 11 years old and, you know, teachers were calling the school all the time because she kept getting up and, and, and uh, sharpening her pencil all day long. And, you know, and she, she didn't like that. Um, so I said to her, you know, what's the deal? And she says, well, you know, well, I think of one thing, they talk about one thing, and then it reminds me of another thing, another thing. So she has associative thinking. And the other thing, um, like photographic memory she had. So if she has photographic memory, then she certainly doesn't have to read something 50 times. She reads it once, and she gets it, and she knows the whole thing, and she can, you know, even copy it down immediately. And so she's bored. Um, and, you know, she's got, like, all these things going on. And all of this is obviously invisible, right, to the school system who thinks this kid's, you know, got something wrong with her and she doesn't pay attention and she's wandering around all day and has no ability because that's what it looks like to the teacher who doesn't know to look deeper. Okay. Um, so I said to her, you know, like your brain's like a really high powered computer or at the time. Now it's, I would say, you know, like you had the, the most powerful iPhone or the computer from 10 years ago. Okay. If you had, what would you prefer? If you had the computer from 10 years ago, how many things can you do at once? And she's like one, two, I'm like, right. Now, if you have a, uh, the highest iPhone, let's say the best, how many things can you do at once? And of course, you know, you can't even count. Right. So I said, now, what would you prefer to have the simpler version? or the, uh, the more complex one. She said, well, obviously the more complex one. I said, yeah, but you have to learn how to use it. You had to learn how to, 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 to press all the buttons. You had to learn how to, to control it. You had to learn to, to filter the data so you don't have too many things at once, what's relevant, what's not. You had to learn how to, to, to work the system. She said, yeah. I said, well, that's how your brain works. Your, you know, your ADHD brain is working differently, but you have a lot of abilities, but you have to learn how to manage it because if you learn how to manage it, manage it, then it will provide you an incredible tool. But if you don't learn how to manage it, then you might get lost all the time and it will be a disadvantage. So, you know, from that age, I was already trying to talk to her about how to train herself to, to you, you know, take all of her different types of thinking and, and channel it into a positive place. I and mean, if you see her now, she's, 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 you know, thank God she's, she's doing well. She's a sign language interpreter and a political activist. And she got a college degree, you know, she's very, very successful things because she learned how to, to, to use the tools she needed to organize herself and to channel her energies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting uh, with the, the family piece uh, and thinking about the ADHD and the operating systems, uh, which I mm -hmm. love. And, uh, you know, the different technologies um, that you can utilize. Uh, so, so like a Mac or a normal laptop, you know, uh, different mm -hmm. processing speeds and everything else. I love it. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's a really good way to describe, um, you know, how our, our brains work differently. And basically how, um, how parents can think around supporting their children um, outside of the school system and the mechanisms that perhaps are, are not helping them properly. A parent, when their kid gets diagnosed, should not see them as defective. They, they're different. And then to, to try and find out what makes them unique and special, that they can, they can take those um, 
differences and, and, and figure out the niche of the things that we can use them to their advantage. You know, if writing this book gives one parent or, or this podcast the ability to look at their child not as damaged and not the school system telling them they're damaged, but as different but not lesser, then I've done my job, you know. If one, and Absolutely. hopefully a lot more, yeah. But 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 I think that's what happens when when you know you, you, uh, the 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 medical um, attitude about any difference create has a parent look at their child as uh, as a problematic as opposed to needing something different, and and that has to change. I mean, you know, your kid, you look at your kid who's your perfect, wonderful child who's doing things differently and has, you know, gifts that have not yet developed. Um, and, and, and then everybody says to you, oh, wait, he's reading too slow. Oh, wait, he's got a He can't focus. And go give him these, you know, pills or take him all these therapies. And like, by the time that kid's 10 years old, he said, I don't know how many assessments. And the parent doesn't look at the child, you know, uh, as that perfect child anymore as their, 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 their unique self. The, the parent looks at the child as the DSM says, my child has A, B, C, D, E. See the disability before the child. Yeah. And, and it doesn't have to be a disability. Now, sometimes it is a disability, right? If you have your child has autism and can't talk, that's, that's difficult. But that doesn't mean the child is lefter and doesn't mean the child has to have a low quality of life. You need to find the way and hopefully you know, have the, the understanding and guidance to do that, to find the way to help unlock what's going on. And it's a journey. There are no instant uh, uh, ways to um, get around child development or, or, or um, you know, everyone has a journey. And life is always a journey when you're a kid or when you're an adult. It doesn't matter. I don't, I don't think any of us are the same as we were, you know, even two years ago. Um, and, 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 and to have an understanding, to see that the child uh, is not, or 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 their neurodivergent, or you know, uh, uh, coworker is is not a person with a problem. It's a person who's different, and and should Absolutely. be accommodated for, and got you know, understanding about those things. And and that person could probably do a lot of things that they can't. The average person can't, you know, <laughs> if they just just tapped into. And then, and then the, the parents of a younger child need to figure out how to way to give them the cognitive and expressive and social and emotional skills that they're going to need to to reach their potential. And it's always a process, um, you know. It's always a process. I think one big lesson for us all, uh, one big lesson for us all over the last couple of years, uh, for, for most people, depending where you are in the world, uh, has been COVID, right? And it's thrown people off chat. It's made them uncomfortable in a wide variety of different ways and reasons. And, I, and, and everybody just needs to consider that. The moments where you feel most uncomfortable is uh, sometimes where people are being forced to feel that way every single day within their work environment, built environment, education system, um, and, and, and have no control over it, which is what a lot of people have felt during uh, this global pandemic. So that's one thing that people can, if you're looking to try and understand what it, what it may feel like um, to have something imposed upon you that um, completely goes against all you know, normal ways of, of your brain and your body working. It's like swimming against the tide, right? Yeah, for sure. I think COVID has woken a lot of people up in a lot of different ways and, and made people sort of sort of restart and think about what's what's important in life, rearrange their priorities, uh, which is probably a good thing about COVID. I don't know how many other yes, things yes. about it, but that one is uh, that one's a good one. I wanna I wanna just one other thing that that um, yes. 
that I think is very, very important. Um, that parents, uh, you know, people don't are not always aware of, and that has to do with language or uh, expressive language or uh, understanding. That a lot of times, if a child um, doesn't have or an adult doesn't matter who it is have ex- good expressive language for whatever it may be, whether it's a you know understanding or cognitive or whether it's a motor problem or organizational problem, whatever it may be the person doesn't have good expressive language. A lot of people make the assumption that that person doesn't understand what's going on around them. And that is a big mistake. So a lot of times, um, and then professionals make that mistake a lot where they'll, you know, a parent was with their child and they go in for a diagnosis and the child, the doctor will say, Oh, what's wrong with them? You know, or what the problem is or, or an educator. Oh, you know, they, they, they sort of talk around the person that they don't even have something uh, valid to say, or they will assume they don't understand, and um, um, or they'll say pessimistic things or, or you know not nice things about that person because they think the person doesn't get it. And I I think that's one of the most difficult things that people need to change awareness: never to say anything not good about somebody next to them what has to do with their abilities because it will destroy them if if you're if you assume competence and 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 know that person could understand it um then just try and you know get in that child's you know shoes if if people are saying not nice stuff around them about them uh or assuming they they you know lack competence i remember when after my surgery i was having all kinds of neurological issues and i was having i was having difficulty speaking as well um and and I was kind of the steroids they pumped me up with kind of gave me like a little ticks and shakes and, and, and all kinds of, you know, I wasn't nice particularly um, when I was really, really pumped up with them. And then I went to this new, different new neurologist. My husband's with me and I'm sitting there on the chair and he's, he's talking to my husband about me. Um, and, you know, it was much too fast for me really getting words out in any kind of speed that they were they were expecting an adult uh, with uh, intact cognitive facilities to, to answer questions. So he was asking my husband and he, he sort of looks at him and says, was she like this before her surgery? You know, and I was like, I understood everything going on in that room. And if I had, you know, good facilities intact and I was physical, I probably would have, you know, picked up my cane and whopped him over the head, but I couldn't. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think of that small child or that, you know, that, that even not small child or adult that has, uh, by problems with expressive language and how many people make those assumptions that just because they can't express themselves, they don't get it. They don't understand and they can say or do anything around them or about them, um, talk around them and about them while they are there. And that's something I think is really, really, really important to generate awareness about. Uh, yeah. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, it's really challenging, isn't it? Because it's mm-hmm. uh, this is one of the biggest problems with, um, you know, where we look at neurodiversity. Uh, it's the invisible element of it that people can can make so many assumptions uh, about an individual because of what they're not seeing and what they're not hearing. Um, when in actual fact, it's there. They just don't know how to access it uh, and engage with that individual. So those assumptions get carried through and then by others, uh, which can have a detrimental negative impact on that individual's mental health, well-being and their ability to be successful in life when there is no reason why they shouldn't be successful. Um, Absolutely. 
Listen, um, it's it's been it's been incredible. I really appreciate you taking the time. If people want to, um, if people want to buy the book, if they want to connect with you, if they want to find you, reach out. Where should they go? What should they do? Okay, uh, if they want to find me, I'm very easy to find on uh, LinkedIn. Um, J A C K I uh, E D R Y, Jackie Edry. Um, I have a website, Jackie's Books. J A C K I S B-O-O-K-S dot com. I have an author page also, uh, Jackie's Books, on Facebook. Um, so you can find me, you know, in any of those messages, any of those ways. My uh, book is on Amazon. Uh, you can also find it through my website. Um, I think on Goodreads as well. You can, uh, there's a link to it. Um, so if you, if you go on my website, you can ha- find my book or you can search for it directly on Amazon. Uh, Amazon UK, Amazon Com, doesn't matter. There's a number of different markets. Um, it's pretty easy to find me. If you're, you know, a random person looking to link up with me uh, on LinkedIn or something, please, or Facebook, please write a little message because, uh, you know, if I have no clue why somebody's wanting to link up with me, I might uh, not always approve it. So there's an option to sort of say, hey, you know, I'm interested in whatever, and then I will, uh, I will be sure to uh, to answer. And I'm happy to talk to people all the time. You have questions about any of the things that I understand. Um, please feel free to ask. Um, I'm, I'm very happy to collaborate and move things forward. And, you know, any, any, any wild ideas for, for changing the world, I'm, I'm definitely uh, happy to hear about. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jackie. Um, really you. pleased to have you on. Same here. Thank you for the opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. And I hope we have more opportunities to do things together. It's been a real pleasure. Definitely. Many hands make light work. You've been listening to Neurodiversity, eliminating kryptonite, enabling superheroes. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can like, share, comment, find us anywhere on any good podcasting host. You can also do some further reading up and buy my book, uh, co-authored with Professor Amanda Kirby, Neurodiversity at Work. You can get it on Amazon with Kogan Page, our publisher, and pretty much any other good bookstore. Enjoy. Look forward to your feedback and keep listening to the show. Thank you.